Hey, men. Uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the Stone. If you have a Bible, go and open up to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. We're actually in a section of Matthew looking at the last week of Jesus' ministry here. And what Jesus has been doing, he has directly confronted the major religious leaders of Israel with the news that they have rejected God for the last time that they've rejected God for the last time. He's turned over tables in the temple, he's cursed fig trees as a foreshadowing of the future, and he has exposed the insincerity of their questions. So we've looked at two parables Jesus has just used to illustrate the utter rebellion that Israel has had towards God, the God who had loved them, called them, saved them, led them, only to be continually forsaken by them. So today we're looking at the third parable. Now remember, parables, are communicating broad themes through very textured and tactile worlds that Jesus is creating in these parables. Jesus used parables to bring about spiritual and hidden realities into sharper focus. So this text we're gonna read today, like every text in the Bible, is simultaneously for the original audience and for us now. So as you're reading your Bible, the more you understand the original author and the original audience, the greater you can understand now what God is saying to you today. So kind of a, a categorical sort of understanding of these religious leaders and the Old Testament in general, just for you to know this, Israel in the Old Testament is not merely a historical people. They're an example of what we're all truly like with God. They're an example to us. So that's why we still read and study the Old Testament, because God still speaks to us through it. Knowing the Old Testament helps us understand the imagery, the promises, and the punishment that's found in this parable. When Jesus is speaking, he's not speaking in a vacuum. He's speaking as the continuation and the fulfillment of what God had already started and begun in Israel. So as we're reading this text, please know, God does not begin with judgment for his people, but they continue to bring it on themselves. And these leaders in this text, when you read this text, the leaders are not examples of how bad people can generally be. They're an example of how bad we can be. They're for us. When you read the scriptures and there's a villain in the passage, don't reduce them down to a caricature of evil that you think you could never become. They are recorded for you and for me as examples for us that we would not fall into the same idolatry as they did. This is what Paul says to a non-Jewish church in Corinth. He's talking about Moses, the wilderness, the Exodus, and here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. He says, now these things in the Old Testament and for, for Israel in particular took place as examples, as examples for us, not just you, but for me, for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So these Jewish leaders who are gonna hear this judgment, they're not an aberration, they're not an anomaly, they're a continuation of the rebellion against God and Israel. But this was not always obvious to Israel. This was not always obvious to the leaders themselves. The leaders, listen, they thought they were right. And not only that, they thought God was on their side, which makes you a special kind of stubborn, right? If you think you're right and God's on your side, you're not listening to anybody. See, they believed that the problems and evil in the world were out there in them, that God was going to overthrow those wicked people, those pagan idolaters, those wicked power structures, those oppressive governments. Evil was out there in them. 
And Jesus had come to tell them that for all the problems and evil that are out there, the biggest issue God had was with the evil in them. For the church, the evil in here. These leaders didn't want God's presence to come and to heal the world. They wanted God's presence to come and crush their foes. They didn't want to worship God. They wanted to use God for their own personal, social, political, and religious agendas. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And this comes to a sorrowful conclusion when they wanted nothing to do with his son. They're this glaring picture that, listen to me, this is very, very important. Proximity to God is different than the submissive posture before God. Proximity and posture are different. They're a picture of that. See, the, the, the texts are clear that these religious leaders, they hear, they hear Jesus, but they have no intent on listening and following him. If you can hear Jesus' words all day long, if your intent in listening is not to submit, you'll wonder why his teachings are so harsh. You'll always misunderstand him. So look at Matthew 21, 45 to 46. This is right after the parable of the tenants, right before the parable we're reading today. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, think about that, they heard Jesus' parables, his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. They're like, I think he's talking about us. And although they were seeking, now look at their intent, they were seeking to arrest him, not seeking to listen, not seeking to submit to him, to arrest him. They feared not God, not Jesus, they feared the crowds because the crowd told him to be a prophet. And then Jesus tells them another parable of judgment, look at verse 15, at the end of it, how they respond. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Here's the point I want you to take from these religious leaders. The more you're around words about God, the more you're around doing things in his name, the more you should examine yourself to ensure that you have not confused proximity for posture. Honestly, especially for me, and any leader in this church who's listening to this right now, we should especially take note because no one is more prone to self-deception with God than preachers and pastors. Because we talk about God all the time, it's easy to think because I'm around him, I must be submissive to him. And I'm pointing all this out to show you that though this parable that we're gonna read is actually, listen, it's about judgment. I want you to know if you're coming back to church or you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're kind of entering back into this space after the pandemic, you're like, great, first Sunday back, all about judgment. Welcome to the Austin Stone. That's not the point. The point is about judgment, but I want you to know that's not where God begins with his people. You're entering into a thousand-year-old story. You're entering into a place where God begins always with joyful invitation. And judgment is the result of ongoing rejection. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this parable line by line. Here's the main point. Here's the main point of the parable. There's one point today. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is God's invitation. It's God's invitation to share in his love and joy for his son. That's the whole point today. We're, we're gonna go through the text. I'll make some observations. We'll have an application and we'll be done. So verse one, Matthew 22, verse one. Look at what it says. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So that verse line, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Like I mentioned, this is the third parable in a row that Jesus has told to these leaders, judgment is coming for you and all who follow after you. And I was looking at these parables this week and I was struck by the imagery that Jesus uses to describe God and his kingdom. 
Think about these last couple of parables if you've been with us. Think about the images he uses for God. God is first a father with two sons. Then he's a landowner and all the things he could build on that land, you know what he builds? A vineyard. And then he's a king who's throwing a wedding party for his son. These are not arbitrary, these are not random images, Jesus just plucking out of the air. These are intentional decisions to describe for us what is God and his kingdom like? What's the nature of God? And as I thought about these images, you could get a lot from them, but here's one thing I want you to know when we read a passage about judgment. These images should make clear that his judgment, listen, is not a sign of a joyless and cold heart. His judgment on those who reject him is not a sign of a joyless and cold heart. It's actually the opposite. His judgments are for those who refuse to share in his home, who refuse to share in his instruction, share in his provision, share in his joy. His judgment is for those, and all of us fall in this category from time to time, who want to uphold the illusion of your autonomy the illusion of your authority. So he has all these images to describe what God is like. And here's this one for today. It says, verse one and two again. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So in the last parable of the tenants with the vineyard, what happened to the son? They murdered him. But notice, and Jesus is doing a little foreshadowing here. They murdered him in the last parable, the son. And in this parable, the king is hosting a party for the son. Think about what this says about Christianity. Jesus wants to make crystal clear that you don't miss that the kingdom of heaven that he has inaugurated here, that he's inviting you into, is not a stoic, joyless gathering filled with holier-than-thou people. It's a wedding feast filled with partiers. That's what he's telling you. And, and I don't know about you, but I love weddings, love them. I was at a wedding a few weeks ago and it was a blast. And a, and a really funny thing that maybe you, did, you wouldn't know about weddings for a pastor, is for a pastor, people lose their minds when you actually dance at a wedding. It's crazy. Like if I start dancing at a wedding, there, there's like two different responses. Like one response is like, oh my gosh, he's dancing to Bruno Mars. I can't believe it. He's like us. <laughs> And it's like, and no one's they're kind of watching me. It's like they found an exotic bird, like you don't want to scare away. You're like, oh, look at him dancing. Oh my gosh. And the other response is pride. That's my pastor. My pastor dances. Is he a good dude? No idea, but look at him out there. It's a strange, this strange experience that I've had over and over again. I guess the pastors are lame. We don't dance. I don't know. But weddings are great. It's this, a wedding. Think about what it is. It's the celebration of never giving up covenant love. It's shouting in praise of your friends. It's dancing. Even if you can't dance, it's like this perfect middle ground of like not bump and grind, but also not like two steppings that too much. So we're in this place where it's this perfect like middle ground and you eat food together and you tell stories and you laugh and what's not to like about a wedding? And I remember in the wedding, I, uh, it was Alex and Laura got married and, and we, I'm watching Alex's face. I teared up so many times, and watching Alex's face when Laura came down the aisle, the way he lit up, watching Laura's eyes when they were being pronounced husband and wife, hearing their fathers just beam over them and their pride in them, watching their siblings talk about how God had used them in their life. Now imagine you're at that scene, imagine you're at like, not like a, a, 
a lame wedding, but like a wedding you're like, that's the best one I've ever been to is this wedding, whatever it is. Imagine you're at the table and Jesus literally pulls a chair up next to you and he goes, hey, this is kind of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Of all the images he could use. No, no, this, Tyler, that. Did did it look repressed and all about duty and obligation? No, look at the joy. Are they stoic and sullen? No, look at them, look at the joy. And Jesus is giving this imagery to show the travesty of the rejection of his kingdom. He's showing us that the kingdom being rejected by Israel and by us who reject Jesus, we're not rejecting a kingdom bound on duty and obligation, but a kingdom that when he could think of, how would I describe it to you? It's kind of like a wedding. That's how I would describe it to you. And look at what it says, verse two and three. It says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So at this text, it says, he sent servants to call those who were invited. The idea is they said they would come. They were invited, now he sends servants to go call them. So they're like, hey, RSVP, Evite, no maybe, no non-response. I put yes that I'm coming. And he sends servants, he gets everything ready. He's like, this is my number, I'm getting everything ready. A couple weeks later, he sends out servants to go tell them, and then they refuse to come. But then the king, what he does, when they say no, he doesn't pout. He doesn't pull away. It's not what his heart is like. He wants to make sure they know his desire for them to be there. Look at verse four. Look at that first word, again. This, that's the character of God. When he gets rejected, he doesn't pull away. He goes after Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The king wants to ensure that they know all the work is done. Listen, he wants them to know with no cost to them. He's saying, I know I'm your king. I didn't unfairly tax you for this. I didn't exploit you in this. Everything that has been used are my resources, my oxen, my fat. It's very important. He says, my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves. He's saying everything is ready. The only thing missing is what? You. Everything's ready. The only thing missing is you. Come to the wedding feast. It's ready. Verse five. Look at this, the sorrow in this. But they paid no attention, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Invitation goes out and at best they're apathetic and at worst they're hostile. But why? Look back at the text. Look at verse five and six particularly. Verse five. Why did they say no? Look, one off to where? His awful immoralities? No. They are apathetic because they already had good things to enjoy in their life. They already had good things. What keeps them from the wedding feast is not, we're going to go club baby seals because we're so evil. Like, that's not, not what they were saying. Is that some awful immorality that you're like, I can't believe how awful they are? No, no. It's good things. It's things like their possessions. 
Things like their career, their routines. Here's the truth. They get the wedding feast invitation, and like so many of us, they're thinking, I kind of like my life the way it is. I don't feel a lot of heartburn. I kind of like the way things are. And what begins in apathy turns into hostility because they want to be left alone. Sure, they think the king may have power, he may have authority, but who is he to tell me what to do? And for our generation, who is he to tell me who I am? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know my story, he doesn't know my desires. I want nothing to do with him. Church, you have to know. When, when I, what I just read, you have to know that's you. Left to our own devices. I have to know that's me. All of us, we settle. We settle for lesser hear me, more tame loves that we feel like we can control. Like, doesn't it feel like, I mean, not, again, not what your right answer should be, what your real answer is. Doesn't it feel like fun trips on the weekends and maybe having a family or a career, all these things that the world offers us, doesn't it seem like those things are safer bets to bring you the joy that you want? You wanna know why? Because you can plan around them because you can imagine yourself in the future. Hey, in two years, three years, I could be here. And the real response of our heart towards God is, why would I mess those up for him? Why would I mess those up for him? We, we think maybe we could find a way to have both, right? Hey God, I got a slot from four to six on Saturday. You available? He's like, I am. Actually, I just filled up. And we can't squeeze him in, so we think, Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe I don't have to be involved in what God is doing. And the whole point of the passage, Jesus just said it, that's the slow and steady path towards judgment. That's what he said. The king came and destroyed them because they refused to honor his son. Now listen, all of us, every single one of us struggle. If you're thinking, golly, well, I struggle so much. I guess I'm not in the, in the kingdom. All of us struggle with responding to God's call, not because you misunderstand God. It's not because you misunderstand him. It's because you don't enjoy him all that much. And you don't enjoy him all that much. I don't enjoy him all that much because I found other things that give me the love fix that I'm after, at least for a moment. And so when you struggle, don't think, because these people, they didn't struggle, they just rolled. We are all gonna hear the call of God in our lives in different ways. His word's gonna command us to do different things. We're all gonna struggle, but when you struggle, you don't hide from God, nor do you act as if you always obey him easily. Instead, here's what you do. You confess to him. The Christian faith is a confessional faith. When we struggle, we don't hide, we don't run, we don't fake, we confess. Because God is not after your perfection before you come. He's after your presence with him. It's not after your perfection before you come. He's after your presence with him. And to be really candid, just to, to model it for you, I recently had to confess this to God myself. So this is about probably six weeks ago. I was in prayer just one morning um, before my kids got up, and I was reading my daily reading plan, and I was, and to learn about where you're at with God, it takes time. Like for most of us, if you're like going to pray and you're like, how am I doing with God? You look like, and you kind of in your mind's eye, like think about how you're doing. You're like, I have no idea. And so it takes time. Like your, your heart, my heart with God is kind of like a pond that has sediment that's been all stirred up. And you look in and you're like, muddy. I have no idea what's going on inside of me. 
And what you need is time and those moments of prayer for that sediment to kind of fall to the bottom and the pond becomes clear and you can see what's there. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And for me that morning in prayer, I was beginning to see something's off. And I was, in a, I was going through a season of my life, all of us have been through 18 months of just so much difficulty. But I was coming to the end of seeing some idols, some, some, and idols are good things that I made to ultimate things, good things that became defining things for me. And what happens as you age is the idols that you're running after, sometimes you get them and you're not satisfied, but sometimes, but all the time they show you how fragile they are and that they could never hold you. And when you come to the end of your idolatry, you realize, I don't really know who I am. And I was having to confess to God, I was realizing that moment, God is the only one. He's the only one who can love me in all the ways that I long for. He's the only one. I mean, it was, it was I was looking at the bottom of my heart, I was looking at that pond, so to speak, and I was thinking and praying, and I was realizing, God truly is the only one who can protect me, the only one who can love me in all the ways I desire. And do you know how I felt? Nothing. I was sitting there and I was recognizing God is alone in this and it didn't move me. And to be completely honest with you, the question that came to my mind is, is if all I have is God, is that enough for me? And in that moment, my honest answer was no. It was no. To be honest, I was disappointed that he was all that I had. Now in that moment, I was telling him, God, as hard as it is to say to you, you are not enough for me right now, but I also was able to tell him, and I know I'm wrong for it, and I know I'm deceived. I have been satisfied by God too many times to trust in my own intuition on this. So I confess to God, and here's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps you thread together honesty and humility where you can be honest and humble at the same time, honest enough to say, God, I'm not fulfilled by you right now, but humble enough to recognize you're not the one lacking, I am. You know what's spectacular about him is when I confessed, I'm supposed to be a pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be a preacher who's leading a people towards God and I'm recognizing God's not enough for me, I felt all this shame and I just told him. You know what he does in your confession? He doesn't pull away, he draws near. That's what we're scared of. If I tell him what I'm really like and I'm humble about it, he's gonna pull back. And every, every time I've done it for the last 20 years, every single time he just leans in. Because he knows me better than I do. He knows more than I know about myself. But he draws near. Please understand me, you will stagnate in your faith. Maybe some of you aren't growing right now in Christ without honesty and humility. Some of you can be honest but then you think I should just stay there forever? Some of you can be humble without being honest about where you're actually at. Honesty that brings who you really are, not who you should be, not who you aspire to be, but who you really are to God, and humility to recognize if there's a problem, it's not in him, it's in me, or it's in the world, it's in the people around, it's not in him, it's in me or in somebody else. And in those moments, the Holy Spirit, like he does, he guides us, he moves us, and you find yourself arriving at conclusions of faith that's how you know the Holy Spirit's been active. When you arrive at conclusions and you're like, I don't know why, I just know Jesus is better, the Holy Spirit's the one who's been guiding you. He, he, he does that, he loves to work quietly and secretly and lead you to places that you're like, oh, this is a, this is a nice green pasture. You did not get there because you're so godly. Holy Spirit was leading you throughout the whole process. So they get, they, God rejects them because they reject him. Verse eight, here's what it says. 
Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Don't, God's heart is, I will not be deterred from sharing my love for Jesus with other people. That's what God's like. He's like, y'all don't want to come? Fine. I have a party ready to go. So we're going to invite other people. And the extension, one thing happening here at a macro kind of biblical story level, this is representing that now the gospel, the kingdom, is going out from Jewish people to Gentile people. To, and to anyone in the world who, who, do, who does not believe that they're too good, too important, or too busy for God's love. See, the feast is ready. So where do they go? To the outsider, to the poor, the broken, the spiritually distant. Do you notice how it said both bad and good? Both bad and good? He's saying that there's people in there whose morality and discipline is in good shape. And people in there who couldn't hold a calendar if life depended on it. And the whole point is, don't think like, are there bad people and good people in the world? No, no. Romans 3, it's a parable, remember? Romans 3, all have fallen short of the, of the glory of God. But his point is, every type of person is now in the wedding feast. Verse 11, then a strange thing shifts. You would think that's the end of the parable, but a strange kind of ending happens. It says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now that feels strange, doesn't it? You're like, you just invited the guy in, you're like, clothes aren't right? Get out. You're like, what, what, what's going on here? Well, before I explain this spiritual fashion faux pas, here, here's the point. Here's the point. We come into God's presence on his terms. We come into God's presence on his terms. So here, here's what's going on in this text. What's, what's subtle in this, but if you look at it, you can see it. The king had clearly provided all the garments needed for everyone to enjoy the wedding. The king had clearly provided these because all of these guests were just roaming the streets. They had no knowledge of the wedding. They didn't know what was happening. They weren't prepared for it. Most of them were probably too poor to buy clothes for the special occasion in this quick of a timeline. And so the fact that only one person in the whole wedding isn't dressed appropriately means the king had already given it for everybody. And here's the point of this person. This man had accepted the party, but he had rejected the reason for it. He wanted to come in and eat and celebrate. He wanted to enjoy the gifts of the kingdom, but he did not want to honor the king of that kingdom. He had the audacity to come in and say, nah, I'm good. I don't need that clothing that, he, that God has given for me to honor him. That's why when, when the king says, why aren't you dressed appropriately? He's like, I have no words. Like, he didn't know what to say because he's recognizing the only reason I have is my own pride. So the punishment that you read in there is so severe because his rejection of such love is so brazen. See, this man had done the very same thing that the religious leaders had done. Listen, he confused proximity for posture. He thought because he was in the wedding, his posture before God must have been true, even though he rejected the clothing God had offered him. So in this time and place that we're in, please know the ultimate litmus test for our entrance 
and our presence in God's kingdom is our receiving and rejoicing in Jesus. That's it. That's it. See, while many reject, on the first rejection, they rejected God's call outright, but others reject, and this is probably a lot of us need to hear this, especially in the time that we're in. Others reject God by making the ultimate purpose of his kingdom something other than Jesus. You, listen, you can love all sorts of things about the kingdom of God. You can love the vision it gives for the flourishing of a society. You can love its concept of mercy or justice or truth. You can love the routines and disciplines it gives you. But hear me, if receiving the unearned righteous perfection of Jesus, if believing that his death alone cleanses you from sin, if rejoicing in his love and hoping in his resurrection and making him the supreme point of all those good things that he brings, if Jesus becomes unimportant, if Jesus becomes unnecessary, if Jesus becomes something that's part of the the plan and part of the kingdom, but not the center of it, I'm telling you, you have rejected the reason for the celebration. It's not just a wedding. It's a wedding for his son. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all for the kingdom of God until Jesus was center of it. They want God's principles to reign, but not God to reign because they can control principles. They can't control God. Now hear me really clearly as I say that. By no means am I saying that making Jesus central and supreme equates to no talk of or obedience to the ethics of his kingdom. Can you hear me really clearly? Far from it. Because if Jesus really is central, if he really is preeminent in the kingdom of God, then everything God has said must permeate every area of our lives. But we must never, ever, ever buy the lie that if we make Jesus the centerpiece, the energy, the reason, the purpose, that will somehow undermine our love and impact on the world. That's a lie. It's the, actually the quite opposite. When you have really known the love of God in your heart for you on the cross and you see all that Jesus lost to have you, all that he lost, the wedding feast was ready. The only thing lacking was you. He lost all that to have you. If you really get that, not in your mind, but to your heart, then you'll be able to sacrifice for other people for their benefit in the same way. You'll obey his commands in every area of society that he calls you to. Why? Because he loved me that way. This is what he's talking. He's talking about if I'm not center, you still don't see. This is what he means, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Yes, God is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over all things, but he's emphasizing something specific here. The Jewish leaders, do you know what they've done if you've read John the Baptist preaching in the early parts of the Gospels? The Jewish leaders used their title as God's chosen people to justify their rebellion. They used their status, and for us, I'm a Christian, so I know God, they use status to rationalize away disobedience. They use status to rationalize their sidelining of Jesus. Jesus, you can play a part, but you're just like any one of us. You're one of many words for us to listen to. But Jesus is showcasing that truly chosen people are those who what? Who come into the celebration of his love. Who wear the garments he provided. That the chosen people of God are not merely that in name only, but the chosen people of God bear the fruits in keeping with repentance. 
They bear fruits of faith and love and obedience and service. So here, here's my last point and we're done. Thinking about the kingdom of heaven, here's my question for you to really consider for yourself. If somebody asked you, somebody comes to you today and says, hey, what's the kingdom of heaven like? What do you think your honest illustration would be? Like, listen, not your theological propositional statement, not that. What, would your, what story would you tell? What illustration would you give? If we could just kind of take your heart, slice it open, what would pour out of it? In a metaphorical sense, what, what would pour out of it? What would your honest illustration be? Would your honest illustration be like, well, the kingdom of heaven is kind of like there's a governing authority over you and you have to pay your church tax to him. If you pay church tax, he gives you some really good religious goods and services. You get to kind of have a good routine and your life is pretty good. Is that what the kingdom of heaven is like? Or would you tell a story like, no, the kingdom of heaven is like an old distant wealthy grandparent who like generally loves you but has no knowledge of your day-to-day -day life and honestly they don't really care so long as you don't do anything really, really bad and you're nice to people and don't bring any shame on the family name, they'll give you money. Or maybe you'd say the kingdom of heaven is kind of like a stern professor who you just, if you get the answers right, he'll give you a pat on the back. But there's no laughing and no jokes. And what would your honest illustration be? What do you think your friends would say your honest illustration is? If you're married, what do you think your spouse would say about you, what you think the kingdom of heaven is like? If you're a parent, what would your kids say like, the kingdom of heaven is mean. Like, like what, what would they say? What would your non-Christians say about your group of Christian friends? If non-Christians got around your group of Christian friends, would they look at it and go, man, the kingdom of heaven is this joyful, love, relational thing. Would they say, they don't really talk, they share half-hearted prayers and no one's really honest? Because until the kingdom of heaven feels like a wedding, I don't think you've seen God clearly. Until something in you can resonate and go, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, not just in theory, but in feel, and in experience. Now, and I say that, please hear me, that uh, the kingdom of heaven being like a wedding doesn't mean everything's always good and fun or lighthearted, it's not. Life is really, really hard. But the idea of the wedding is that there is this deep meaning that permeates still in your life that there's this love that persists, this hope that persists, this joy that persists, even as you're going through the darkest times. The reason is because there's another wedding coming. That the reason is like a wedding, because there really is a real wedding coming, and it's not like a parable. Revelation 19.6, this is how, no matter how hard this last year is, no matter how hard it'll be, this is still what's gonna happen. John says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us, everybody, rejoice and exult and give him alone the glory for what the marriage, the wedding 
of the lamb has come and his bride, all those who trust in Jesus, his bride has made herself ready. Notice the language of clothing again. And it was granted her, granted us to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted to us, Jesus grants us the ability that according to his perfection and his righteousness that we've received, you can now live in his righteousness. Think about what your future and eternity is. Your sins are forgotten. It doesn't say that their deeds, their linen is sort of bright and sort of pure. Your sins are forgotten, but your love for God and love for neighbor lives on. The things you clothe yourself with are the things God's used you to do. You don't clothe yourself with the shame that you felt in this life. Heaven on earth, heaven on earth won't be kind of like a wedding. It'll be the most real one that's ever existed. Heaven on earth won't be sort of like a king celebrating his son. It will be dancing and laughing and storytelling and serving and singing and eating and rejoicing in Jesus as the one who loved me and gave himself for me. All I can ask you to do, I don't care how long you've been at church, I don't care how long you've been following Jesus, don't reject his celebration. If you're entering back in and you're scared of faith and you're scared of trust, you don't have to be perfect. All he wants is your presence. Everything you're looking for is with him. Let's pray together. Father, what a thing, what a thing for us to sit here and consider and contemplate the fact that if you were to describe on your own terms what your love is like, you'd compare it to a wedding, to a party for your son. And God, in a year of difficulty and struggle and striving and arguing and contemplating and running and fear, all these things, God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, would you help us be a people who never sacrifice your gifts for you, who long to see your kingdom come, and Jesus, we want you to be at the center. We want no part of a kingdom where you're not center, and we want no part of a kingdom where you're not obeyed. Because we've tasted and seen that you're good. We've come into the wedding. We've seen that it's satisfying. And God, those of us are scared to hope again because we've been hurt. We're scared to trust again because we're weary. We're scared of obeying again because it didn't work out the way we thought that it would. And yet, God, you remain the same. You keep coming after us. We confess you're not enough. And you say, I know. I know you think that. I'll show you I'm enough. God, help us in this room draw near to you with messy, complicated hearts so you can steady us, so you can satisfy us, so you can remind us that, Jesus, you have clothed us every day with grace, that not one sin is remembered against us, 
that what you see and what you remember are the things you've used us to do for your kingdom and your name. God, that's why we're a singing people. Because this truth can't just be talked about. It has to be sung. It has to be celebrated. Jesus, put yourself back at the center of our hearts. Put yourself at the center of this church. And we trust you with everything else. Pray this in your name. Amen.